What is up, guys? We are back again with another episode. And in today's episode, we're going to continue the female health series. And particularly, or specifically, I should say, we're going to continue talking about menopause and the kind of things that go along with that in regard to the considerations that we as individuals, well, I'm not going to go through menopause. So I say we as a collective, we referring to people who are going to go through menopause. <laughs> but uh, we're going to talk about some of the considerations. But what I would suggest is if you haven't listened to the last episode, go back and listen to it now because it lays a lot of the, the, the groundwork, the framework for what we're going to discuss here. And we're not just going to basically repeat the same stuff we've covered in the last episode. So if you come to this, someone shared it with you and you haven't listened to the last episode, just go back, listen to it. It covers a lot of the foundational stuff around menopause. And then it really opens up the conversation around some of the considerations we have in terms of what we can do, training, lifestyle, nutrition, all that kind of stuff. It kind of opens up the conversation here. And then today's episode, we're going to continue with that. But before we get into that, I would like to say that again, we're not joined by Gary. Gary is on a, a lovely two-week holiday. You know, he's he's in the Balkans. I think he's in Croatia at the moment, enjoying himself. But that's actually a blessing in disguise because we don't have to listen to him. Instead, we get to listen to Nicola. Nicola, how are you? I'm good. Not a bother. Anything going on in your life at the moment? No, no, I'm I'm off work now. I'm off the work from the hospital anyway for, for the next month. So I'm just relaxing, taking it easy, just doing triage work. Triage work doesn't stop. You don't get holidays. Doesn't stop, doesn't stop, never. The grind doesn't stop, I suppose. <laughs> um, anyway, so today, what are we talking about, Nicola? Yeah, so today, you know, the, the last day we went through kind of what is menopause, we went through kind of training considerations, um, and then a lot of the kind of um, health risks that kind of increase um, kind of once we hit that kind of um, post-menopausal age um, and perimenopause as well. So today is what we're going to be going through is more kind of the nutrition considerations um, that are a little bit more specific to menopause um, and then some lifestyle considerations uh, as well. Um, so with, with nutrition, yeah, the funny thing is with with nutrition is a lot of the kind of general kind of you know like quote unquote like good health recommendations they say through through men they say true through menopause um but they become you know a lot more specific and a lot more kind of important for um, women during kind of perimenopause and postmenopause um and the thing is when we give out um general nutrition recommendations i feel like you know not i feel like people generally kind of don't really care because it's too non-specific and too kind of general towards everyone that it's kind of like okay i know that that's true but like you know it'll happen kind of to the other guy or like you know what won't i do as a an individual yeah, what should I do I'm I'm an individual and it should be kind of personalized towards me but with with menopause again we're saying kind of women um of a certain age that are kind of going through this transition so suddenly people do kind of take a little bit more notice and it is one of those things that you know for our health that we kind of should take more notice to these nutritional considerations because they are what, what's going to make kind of the biggest um, difference towards these kind of health risk factors in terms of cardiovascular disease, in terms of our bone health, um, in terms of, you know, our hair, skin, nails, um, you know, mental health, sleep, um, the symptoms of uh, menopause. Those are what's going to, those are the things that are going to kind of help us kind of the most with this transition. So um, yeah, an, an important episode, I think, to, to go through all these. Yeah. And, and it's important to kind of realize that like you get, you're afforded some form of protection via estrogen, right? As a woman, you basically get a few extra 
health benefits, we'll say, from estrogen, right? So if you look at all the things that happen to guys, you know, in terms of like, say, heart disease, they're also heart disease happens to women as well. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. But, you know, it's more prominent in male populations. Now, some of that is a bit of a, we'll call it a selection bias in terms of it's kind of agreed upon that, oh, women get less heart disease. So they get screened for heart disease less. And as a result, it's found less. So there is a little bit of that, but we do know we have mechanistic reason, reasons to, you know, argue that, you know, men are at more risk for heart disease, right? So as a woman, you can kind of go, okay, yeah, I want to be aware of heart disease, but it's of a, a lower priority, a lower concern, because I don't have this excess amount of testosterone. And I also have the beneficial effects of estrogen. And some of those beneficial effects are like, you know, vascular health, some of them are like cognitive health, different things, right? So you get all these, you're afforded all these benefits, these, you know, additional, you know, health, whatever modifiers, whatever you want to call them via estrogen. But as we discussed in the last episode, after menopause, there is a hormonal transition. There is a reduction in a lot of these beneficial hormones, right? And some of that is, you know, you know, okay in terms of some people like, oh, the, the symptoms in the, the perimenopause and the menopause, the actual transition were annoying, but afterwards they actually enjoy some of the symptoms, you know, or I suppose some of the uh, symptomology i don't know what the word is you know where it's like oh it's actually more beneficial to not have these things going on say for example you know having to deal with a period every month you're like oh actually this is this is a benefit you know some people would consider that right so we have to take that but that also comes along with a more we'll call it male pattern of health issues right there are still some female specific ones but all of those things that the you know, female hormones, I suppose you'd call them, are giving you this uh, advantage against or this protection against. Now you don't have that protection. So you need to become more aware of these different things, notably cardiovascular health. That becomes a big one. That becomes something that you really have to pay more attention to the actual guidelines. Whereas before you could, you know, go to your, your doctor, get your blood lipids done and they come back and you're like, your HDL is fantastic. You know, your LDL, fantastic as well, right? Whereas you're, let's say you're in a, a male-female partnership, you could eat the exact same diet, maybe difference in, you know, absolute calories or whatever. And you eat the exact same diet as your husband, right? And he goes in and goes, yeah, my HDL is, is not great. And my LDL is a little bit elevated, right? And you're going, oh, well, we eat the same. So, you know, it must be genetic, right? But we often forget that some of that genetic component is actually just the hormonal component as well, you know, and whereas he might go, okay, I'm going to have to go on a statin or I'm going to have to do make these changes or whatever. He might do them earlier in life. As a woman, you might be like, I'm not at risk. I'm not this. I'm looking at my blood lipids here. It's not an issue. It's just who cares? You know, it's like, okay, I understand as a general guideline, this is what people are suggested to do. But for me, I'm looking at the blood lipids. I'm looking at the data for me. It's not an issue. But then we get to the perimenopause, the menopause, and you get your blood lipids done again. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, why is my HDL so low? It was always so high. Oh, wow. Why is my LDL so high? It was always in, in a good range, you know? So what I'm saying is you can basically get away with a lot, you know? You know how like oh, everyone always says like as, as a teenager or even in your young 20s, like you can just get away with a lot in terms of exercise, in terms of nutrition. Like you're just afforded a, a degree of, you know, getting away with a lot right um whereas you lose that or to some degree you lose that in your perimenopause menopause transition you know and that's unfortunate because 
then we come up to, against a situation where you've probably built up some bad habits. You've probably not had to spend the time really focusing on really good nutritional habits, whatever it is, you know? And I know in the health and fitness industry, we focus a lot on like the calorie argument and the more we'll say like the aesthetic argument where it's like, oh, it's all just about body fat control and whatever. Like we're not talking about that. We're talking about just good, healthful eating patterns, you know? Um, but where do we start with this? Because I just jabbered on there a, a lot, but you know, What's the story? What, like, where do we start with nutrition when we're, we're thinking about menopause? Yeah, so it, it makes sense, really, when when you go into perimenopause, menopause, there's this huge, you know, endocrine shift and this complete flatlining, you know, of our estrogen, of our progesterone. So like you're saying, we we lose that protective effect of estrogen. And this was the most kind of jarring, um, you know, health risk is the cardiovascular disease health risk. Um, and like you were saying, you know, in this postmenopausal age, kind of the, the playing field is kind of leveled between men and women. And, um, you know, cardiovascular disease is the, the greatest cause of mortality of, of women in that age group. So this is when we really need to start kind of, you know, dialing into our, our cardiovascular health kind of, in, you know, in terms of nutrition. So, you know, our lipid, our, our glucose metabolism is affected, you know, we have an increased risk of, you know, metabolic syndrome, kind of obesity, diabetes, you know, our insulin resistance increases. Um, so you're kind of here again, a big scary list of, of, of things that that can go wrong, but you kind of need to take it. Okay. Like what, what are kind of, you know, my, my big rocks here, what do I need to be kind of prioritizing? Um, and instead of immediately going to, you know, like statins or, you know, you know, anything else, um, you're like, well, what are the things that are going to help me kind of the most? And it's looking, evaluating kind of where your diet is now. And what is it mostly, you know, comprised of like, is it, am I mostly having, um, you know, kind of, um, uh, whole grain um, variations of carbohydrates or is is my food still consistent mostly of kind of you know like white bread bagels kind of processed carbohydrates or am I mostly having kind of higher GI foods um, so again it's just kind of taking taking those as it is and kind of you know building from there so generally the recommendations are um, avoiding kind of higher GI foods and uh, more kind of whole grain um, variations of carbohydrates, kind of fruit and veg, trying to get most of your carbohydrates really through kind of like vegetables, especially like cruciferous vegetables um, are going to be the things that, that, that are going to kind of help the most, you know, you're looking at your kind of, you know, your saturated fat then trying to keep that, you know, below kind of 10%. Again, it's one of those things that we kind of, you know, write off when we're kind of younger, we're like, oh, I'm sure it's below 20, 10%, you know, um, but it's something that it is kind of worth actually kind of like tracking and taking a look at kind of where am I actually, you know, sitting out with this and you'd be maybe surprised about kind of how high it is, you know, towards the end of the week. Okay. Especially, yeah, like what you're saying there, like you need to look at it on like a weekly scale because people do this all the time. They'll be like, oh, yeah, my diet is fantastic with regard to saturated fat. And like the way fatty acid metabolism is like you're basically able to store fats. So it's it's a bit of a, a longer discussion than if we were talking about carbohydrates or protein. Um, but you'll see this all the time. People will be like, oh, yeah, Monday to Thursday. Look, look at this. Look at this diet. There's like five grams of saturated fat in this. Fantastic. And then you'll see the weekends come along and you're like, well, Jesus, you're actually at 50 grams on all of those days and you know you're only eating 2000 calories <laughs> yeah absolutely and this and it's a bit of a tangent now but say, same with alcohol you know people are like oh I don't, I don't really drink that much but then they have like you know 20 units at the weekend and it's like okay well you know your, your total to, towards the end of the week is kind of garbage like you know you need to kind of take the whole you know into it into an account um 
but yeah so kind of looking at your kind of your, your source of carbohydrates um you know looking at your kind of saturated fat intake and as well you know backpedaling to to carbohydrates when i was saying with the increase in insulin resistance you know what's what can be particularly helpful to kind of exercising women um is kind of having a lot of your kind of carbohydrates kind of around training like if that kind of one having a higher carbohydrate meal kind of after training again you've kind of a greater kind of glucose kind of uptake kind of into your muscle cells um which can, can can be helpful again just just for kind of maintaining that the blood sugar level um but just on that as well like there are lots of studies that suggest like just being active for like you will know, say 10 minutes after your meal like a lot of people suggest like for a 10 minute walk after you've eaten yeah. like stuff like that is actually really easy to implement in terms of like okay maybe not a 10 minute walk or whatever but look you had your meal rather than just sitting down and going okay i'm just going to relax for the next whatever just getting out and doing some movement like that can be really beneficial for making sure that you overcome this increased propensity towards insulin resistance. Cause I know insulin resistance sounds like this big, like scary word or like scary thing. It doesn't have to be. It basically just means that you're a little bit resistant to the signal of insulin and you can help that through like basically non-insulin mediated glucose uptake, which is just like contract your muscles a little bit. All of a sudden the glucose gets into your muscles where we want it and it's not an issue, you know, and that over time actually, you know, tends to increase insulin sensitivity. So you do actually overcome this uh, insulin resistance that can occur in this perimenopause to menopause transition. So it's not like, oh, this is, you're just, you went through menopause, boom, you're insulin resistant, you know, you're fucked. You can do things. Exercise is one of them, but just generally being active is another one. And then as you're saying on the diet front, we're switching away from ideally, well, ideally we're switching away from more of those kind of refined carbohydrates and we're moving more towards that kind of you know whole grain model of carbohydrates or just you know fruits and vegetables but in general that's what we discuss and that's what we recommend anyway like we rarely recommend oh yeah eat these jellies or eat these like high sugar content foods like yeah we might recommend that occasionally for someone that has a very high uh you know carbohydrate requirement maybe they are a, a multi-event day athlete like like I've, i have to train three times per day it's like okay well you probably have a high energy requirement and we want to refuel as quickly as possible so yeah maybe we do focus on more of those higher gi carbohydrates but that's generally not most people and it's generally not you know middle age to older age women as well yeah absolutely and that 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 tip for for getting up and kind of walking around after your meal is like fantastic and can help um someone not like can help be uh, you know someone who's not kind of post-menopause as well but um you know particularly a lot of women that are perimenopausal postmenopausal can suffer from a lot of kind of gi issues as well like ibs symptoms kind of you know bloating constipation um and actually just kind of yeah getting up and kind of moving around after a meal can help with those symptoms as well i know that's a bit of a tangent but just actually getting up and, and walking after a meal can have kind of multiple benefits yeah and again this is what we were going back to in the last episode when we were discussing like estrogen has like baseline functions you know like you require estrogen for just the normal functioning of your body. So stuff like gastric motility, the actual ability to like, you know, move things along your gastric tract, like you need estrogen for that. So it makes sense why, oh, I'm actually getting these symptoms or these issues. Like maybe it's, you know, diarrhea, not diarrhea, um, constipation or something after uh, when I, I normally, this is the exact same way I was eating previously. And now it's, it's all changed. Like stuff like that. Again, we can overcome this to some degree. And um, we'll talk about that a few times throughout this episode um but stuff that is very simple to implement can actually be profoundly effective like we we're saying 
go for a little bit of a walk, move around. Like that kind of stuff actually does help. And it sounds so almost patronizing to be like, yeah, yeah. just move around a little bit, just go for a 10 minute walk and it's all good. And yeah, obviously there's huge barriers to this in terms of like, it would be great if we all had the ability to go for a 10 minute walk after all of our meals and it didn't impact our day or whatever. But for a lot of people, that's not possible. Maybe the area you live in, you have a job, you have kids to look after, whatever the fuck it is, right? There's a million and one different barriers. Um, but then also, it sounds too simple. <laughs> you know, it sounds like just go for a 10 minute walk. Like that's so patronizing in terms of, oh, I didn't think of that. Go for a bit of fucking exercise after my meal. Yeah. But it is actually so effective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the things that I always try and kind of drill home is again, just kind of what's the, what's the low hanging fruit or kind of what's, what's the big rocks we need to, we need to see what are the kind of the easiest and most simple things to implement before we start going down, you know, any other kind of crazy kind of supplement route or investigations to wonder kind of why these things are happening when it could be something that is really simple that can make the most difference. Yeah, hundred percent. So, so far we're, we're thinking about, okay, maybe there's a little bit of increase in insulin resistance. So I'm changing out my carb sources, or at least I'm focusing on the, we'll call it lower GI carbohydrates. Um, in terms of fats, then we're, we're also thinking about heart disease. So what are we thinking there? Yeah. So like you're saying, it's really trying to keep the saturated fat intake to kind of below kind of 10% of your, of your, of your daily, daily, um, you know, um, intake um and then after that even trying to kind of replace that kind of with unsaturated fatty acids um so your polyunsaturated fatty acids even your like your omegas um so particularly trying to like most people do not get enough kind of omega-3s in in the diet so that's mostly going to come from your kind of your fatty oily fish like salmon um mackerel so again if, if that's something that that is like multiple benefits not just for your cardiovascular health um, but we know also for our cognition as well so if it's not something that that you are consuming regularly um it might be something that that'd be worth looking into to supplementing yeah and especially with heart disease when we're thinking about that we're thinking about cumulative risk so we're thinking of it over time so this is fortunately and unfortunately one of those things where it's not like, you know, I don't know, you hit 45 or what's the average age? 51 is the average age for menopause. It's not like you hit 51 and 52, you're going, Jesus, my heart, I have literally, I have heart disease now, you know, it's not like that. It's not like it just boom. Right. Yeah. Um, but it is something that accumulates over time. And the negative to that is it, that means it's something that you can ignore for a long time, <laughs> you know, but the positive of that is you can make small changes that compound over time. You know, if you start thinking about this, ideally in your 20s, you know, well, ideally in your, you know, childhood, ideally your parents were thinking about it because we can see atherosclerotic like plaques build up in like teens and stuff. But let's, you know, just assume we're only talking about your adult life. You know, if you can think about this in your 20s, happy days. You are so far ahead of the curve. Right. But let's assume, you know, like most people that 20, your 20s are not the time you're thinking about your, your health, your peak health, or at least you're not thinking about cardiovascular risk, even though we would argue that you should, you know. Um, but if you can start thinking about it, as you get into this kind of perimenopause window, as you start going beyond menopause, going, okay, I've had the protective benefits of estrogen, you know, helping me out here, I'm losing that. So now I have to think about it a little bit more and I'm going to really have to change it, change my diet in terms of, okay, maybe I was eating foods that are higher in saturated fats and I'm going to switch to foods that are you know, higher in monounsaturated fats. You know, ideally we like that kind of switch rather than going, oh, I have to completely change up my diet, like making simple switches rather than using butter, for example, um, on like when you're, you're cooking, let's switch to olive oil, you know, something like that. It's not 
excessive in terms of the change that you have to make but it is actually really impactful in terms of your health, you know? Um, so we're just looking at those small changes. And again, that is cumulative, both in terms of it's a cumulative risk for atherosclerosis, but also it's cumulative in terms of you can make small changes and they add up over time, you know, to like keep your risk lower, if that makes sense, you know? Um, but ideally, like you said, we're keeping saturated fats below 10% of the diet. Um, and like I would argue, and we'll talk about screening for, for women in general throughout the, uh, throughout their life in another episode. So we won't get too far into it these days or in this episode. Um, but I would generally just go, right. You should get your blood lipids done in your fifties, in your sixties, just get them checked. Like it should be part of a routine, regular, you know, metabolic hormonal panel, whatever that you can get from your GP. As far as I'm aware, like you literally can walk into your GP and go like, I'm a potentially at risk population. I want to just get my blood lipids tested and they'll, they'll organize that for you, you know? And um, so it is a good thing to keep track of. Now we're not one for, uh, you know, excessive tracking. I'm not saying you have to do this every four fucking weeks or something. I'm like, look, you should just get an idea of where you are so that if it is an issue, like you can have so many different things that you just didn't know. Like you could have like, I don't know, hypercholesterolemia, familial hypercholesterolemia and just not be aware of it, <laughs> you know? Um, so getting it checked, that can be really helpful because then you know if the dietary changes you've made or the dietary changes that you're making are actually impacting on the outcome that we want to impact on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and like you were saying, it, it, it's kind of, even though um, cardiovascular disease, it is kind of like a marathon event. I mean, it's something that develops over kind of, you know, 40 years. Like it's not something like you were saying that just, you know, bang, you kind of hit kind of that perimenopausal age and it happens, but that doesn't mean, you know, kind of if, if, if you're listening to this and you're like, am I too late? Like, absolutely not. Like there, there are so many changes that, that, that you can make. Like you were saying, kind of those small changes kind of snowball in, in, into larger ones over time. So it is important to kind of kind of lay, lay down the groundwork. Yeah. And it is something obviously look, you ideally want to discuss with your doctor because they can advise you on a specific level, not just us going, yeah, keep your saturated fat below 10%. Like obviously that's, that's helpful. But if your doctor's going like, okay, that's just not going to make a difference for you because we're looking at your diet here and look, your saturated fat is actually at 5%. So you're already doing everything and your LDL is still high, you know, or you've got other risk factors like ApoB or uh, lipoprotein little a or whatever. You're like, they're looking at the panel here going, these are out of whack. These are not where we want to be. And you're doing everything right with the diet, you know? So like the diet can only do so much, but it is at least the first line intervention that we're looking at. And obviously look in our company, I'm not a doctor, obviously Nicola, you are a doctor, so you can talk about this stuff. Um, but for most of the stuff that we're recommending, we're talking about this kind of preventative health, you know, stuff. What can we do before we have to look at like pharmacology or anything like that, you know? Um, so that's, we'll, we'll say heart disease. That's one of the things that we're looking at in this menopausal, you know, transition to post-menopause. We're going, okay, we have to be more aware of our you know, insulin resistance. And we also have to be more aware of our cardiovascular, we'll call them blood lipids, you know, markers, right? So that really in general tends to make people look at you know okay carbohydrates in the diet that's the first first protocol here fats especially saturated fat in the diet so we've got those two things covered and um, but we also have to consider the training side of things because that obviously helps with insulin resistance so we've covered that in the last episode we basically like right training training recommendations don't really change we want to do stuff that helps build muscle and then also ideally you know 
get some sort of cardiovascular training in there as well. Um, so we're, we're doing all that stuff. But we also have to consider, and this is what a lot of people, well, at least what they interact with health and fitness related people for is this kind of body composition change, right? So bone health is one thing that we're going to cover in a second. But before we get to that, because obviously it's very intrinsically tied with the cardiovascular risk and the insulin resistance, it's this kind of uh, change in body fat distribution for one, right? So you go from this kind of gynoid uh, distribution of body fat to this kind of android and whatever the word is androgenic, I suppose, uh, type of, I was like, Android, that doesn't make sense. It's like a robot, <laughs> uh, androgenic type of body fat distribution. So we move from, you know, women will tend to store more of their fat on their legs, their bum, like that kind of area. Um, whereas men will tend to store fat on their abdomen, right. On, on their kind of abs. Now, a lot of that fat is also stored in like the internal, uh, space, like, so around the organs, so that visceral fat, which is the least, uh, beneficial, the, the the worst kind of fat that we can store, right? Whereas that kind of you know, subcutaneous fat, especially around the, the the legs and the bum and all that kind of stuff, like that's actually more beneficial, right? But that kind of changes when we're in this this menopause transition. Again, we're losing that beneficial effect of estrogen, so you get this body fat redistribution, right? So, first of all, we're obviously going to bring in some sort of training to you know, just make sure that we're building muscle, make sure that we're, you know, uh, effectively burning calories, that we're doing all the kind of stuff to kind of keep body fat levels in check in a, in a healthy range. And you know, we're making sure that our diet is, you know, not excessive in calories, not too low in calories. And we'll talk about too low in calories again later on in this episode. Um, but what are we doing with our overall calorie level here? Because uh, this is one of the things that I find, at least for a lot of people, it's very confusing to navigate because, First of all, their energetic demands might change, right? Their lifestyle might change. Like, let's say you enter menopause, I don't know, at like 51, like maybe all your kids are grown up by then. You're not really chasing around people. Maybe you have a, a higher up job, like you've been in the, the career sphere, whatever career you're in for the last, whatever, 30 years or whatever it is by that stage. And you're like, right, I probably have a more sedentary job as well. Some sort of like managerial role. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that changes, right? But then we also have some hormonal changes that occur. So what are we doing? What are we doing with calories? That's the, the, the fundamental thing here. Because we can go, okay, we can get protein right because, you know, it's fairly easy to work out. It's like basically we'll say just arbitrary a gram per pound in and around there. We'll just go, right, that's a, a blanket statement. Obviously, that can be refined a lot more, right? Um, but we'll just say, okay, there. And then we're, we're switching to a little bit more of these kind of complex carbohydrates. We're watching our saturated fat. Where, where, like to do all that, I need to know where my calories are at. So what's the story there? Yeah. So I suppose the, the kind of the big buzzword that you hear around menopause is that, you know, your, your metabolism slows down and kind of, you hear that a lot. And a lot of women say that that's kind of why that they put on weight, but the, the weight thing is, I suppose, kind of, you know, multifactorial and the way that there, there is a change in kind of resting metabolic rate, but you know, that can happen in men as well, just as we age and um, that can slow down a little bit. And, and again, that'll come down to, you know, you, you know, getting older, you know, kind of losing kind of muscle mass as well. Um, where kind of you know kind of sarcopenia can come into it where you've just kind of age-related muscle um decline so your 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 uh, you know kind of output kind of you know isn't as much um 
So again, you might not be kind of looking after kids anymore. You might not be working anymore. Um, you might not be as kind of, you know, fit and able-bodied, but you might still kind of be eating the same amount of foods. Um, so it comes down to, to kind of not just your, you know, metabolism s- slowing down, but kind of a lot of these other factors as well that can lead you to, to gaining weight. And like you're saying, that kind of change in distribution a lot of it comes down to we have a lot of um, estrogen receptors kind of in our in our lower body women do um so when again the hormones kind of flatline when estrogen fat flatlines um that um the 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 fat cells then are, are kind of more prone to kind of go around kind of the midsection and um, which like you're saying is more kind of a male pattern um fat distribution hmm. yeah and it's it's very hard thing to navigate because i would love to be able to go okay so you're in perimenopause that means that your metabolism is going to change by x percentage so we adjust calories by this and once you hit like actual like menopause you know we're 12 months without a period etc your metabolism is going to change by this much so we'll adjust it like this but that's just not possible it's so different for everyone and at least in my uh, understanding of the research, it's basically two things that we really have to look out for. The first of them is just muscle mass, right? Like this is one of those things that it is actually the main determinant or one of the main determinants, I should say, of your just resting metabolic rate in general, right? So if anyone talks to you about like, oh, my metabolism slowed or whatever, like 99% of the time that's related to you know, changes in muscle mass or changes in lean body mass, I should say, because there are other things that contribute to it as well, but changes in lean body mass, right? That seems to be the the biggest driver here. Now, there are other changes as well, which can account for a lot and which are more of the, we'll call lifestyle stuff, which we often in the fitness world call this like neat or non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So there we're talking about, you know, how many steps you get per day, your fidgeting, walking around, all that kind of stuff. It adds up to a significant calorie burn for a lot of people, you know, like uh, some research would suggest even up to 2000 calories in a difference just by virtue of neat. Right. So that's one of the, they're, they're the two things that we're looking at here when we talk about this metabolism change. Right. So a lot of people, their lifestyle is going to change. You know, it's just, that's naturally what happens. People will say this, Oh, you know, you get the middle age spread. And again, 99% of the time you look at that and you go, this is, first of all, has been accumulating over years. You're only really noticing it now. And the reason it's been accumulating over years is because we can track your activity here when you were in your twenties, you know, and it's like, oh, you were walking everywhere. You had to commute, you had to like get the bus, you had to do a lot of stuff uh, in terms of you physically had to move a lot to go around these different places. And then we get into our late twenties, thirties. And maybe have a car, you've better access to different ways to transport around. Uh, and also maybe your job has changed. So you're not more in a physical job, you're in a more sedentary job, you're sitting down a lot more, you come home, maybe you don't engage in those other activities that you used to. Um, maybe you still go to the gym like three times per week, but you now it's basically three hours of your week are active, whereas the rest of the time you're just inactive. So we've got this huge change in this non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and that starts compounding over time. Because even like, let's imagine it's only a, a, like whatever, 150 calories in the difference of a day, you know, like that compounds over the next 10 years, you know, it's like, you're still in a, basically in a surplus of 150 calories every day for 10 years, you know, so you accumulate body fat, right? Um, but then also we've got this like intersecting thing going on here when we talk about menopause. So there's a little bit of that changes in the, the niche, the, the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. But then we've also got potentially a reduction in our lean body mass by virtue of not having the hormonal support anymore, not having like estrogen having this favorable effect, favorable effect on muscle building and muscle retention, and also 
you've probably been losing muscle mass at a similar rate throughout all of those years because even though yeah i was doing like three hours of activity throughout the you know the week or whatever like it wasn't that high intensity it wasn't i wasn't really pushing myself i wasn't maybe doing resistance training i was just you know maybe going to a class or maybe doing some swimming which are all great activities i'm not saying anything against it you know um but you weren't just giving a stimulus to retain that muscle or ideally you know build more muscle so now we've got this intersection here of we're accumulating body fat because we're effectively in a surplus because we're not as active right and then we're losing muscle mass over time which we know is a very big contributor to our resting metabolic rate uh, our overall calorie burn per day so now we've got this intersection of these two things going on which a lot of people start realizing they're like jesus actually my metabolism has slowed so much when in reality it's like you're just less active and you don't have the muscle mass that you used to have you know and with the muscle mass especially you notice that a bit more because it also gives your body shape, you know? So you might've been like, I'm actually the same body fat level. So you might weigh less, but you're like, my body doesn't look like how it used to look, you know? And you're like, oh, I used to be, let's just say 70 kilos. And I really like the way I look, you know? And um, I like the way the, the body fat distribution, I, the amount of body fat that I had, the amount of muscle that I had. And then you might be 60 kilos and after whatever, you're in your menopause or whatever. And you're like, I actually... I don't like the way I look, even though, you know, you would think, oh, being lighter is going to lead to a leaner physique or whatever. You might be like, I actually have maybe a little bit more body fat than I did when I was 70 kilos. I've just lost 10 kilos odd of muscle, you know, and that's been happening over the last 10 years or however long, you know? So there are things that we have to consider here, which it's so multifactorial then when we try to go, oh, well, this is your calorie demands, or this is how we should adjust calories, you know? So do you have anything to say on that? no not not really like again coming coming back to the muscle mass thing like you know sarcopenia age muscle time it is kind of a huge cause of kind of morbidity kind of in in that adult kind of population so and and that, that we're going to link in with kind of bone health in a minute but again just looking at our, our exercise stimulus you know and um our nutrition so primarily our, our protein intake um so those are going to be kind of the, the the two biggest factors that are going to mitigate that for you know our, our general health in terms of our bone health or you know muscular health um but also in, in terms of body composition as well yeah and like i i often think of this in terms of i'm like in your let's say up till you're 40, let's just, I'm picking a number here. It could be later, it could be whatever, right? For both men and women, we want to be focusing on gaining as much muscle as possible, okay? Because after that, there is somewhat of a, we'll call it a functional decline, you know, in terms of your ability to build more muscle potentially goes down. And this is, it's hard to really parse out in the research because, you know, this could be just, again, changing in lifestyle, um, different things. Like obviously, look, you're going to build more muscle if you've never trained in your life. And then all of a sudden at 40, you start training versus someone who's been training their whole life. They're not just going to magically gain 10 kilos of muscle in their forties, unless they go on some sort of like special sauce. Um, right. So like, that's one of the things that we have to consider that, okay, there is probably some sort of functional decline happening after 40. I'm just picking 40, could be 45, could be 50, could be 60. It really depends. Right. Um, so both men and women really need to be focusing on that muscle mass aspect but especially for women when we're talking about menopause because at least with men like although they say that there's a, a decline in testosterone as you age again that's one of those things where is it a decline in testosterone is that like genetically programmed because you see people and literally like 70 80 year olds and they have like 900 nanograms per deciliter or like top, top tier like uh testosterone output because there's no like menopause there's no andropause for men right in the research they you know potentially there is but 
it's one of those things that's very hard to parse out because a lot of it is related to lifestyle, you know? Um, so there's a little bit less of that going on for men, but for women, you are going to lose the hormonal advantage that you have, right? So you basically want to maximize that up until you lose it and then make sure that we've really instilled good habits that are going to lead to the retention of muscle mass over time. You know, you basically like, you know, it could be the a third, even half of your life, depending on, you know, modern advances. Let's say you, you uh, go to the menopause at 50, right? Like you could easily in this day and age, it wouldn't be unreasonable to say like, you know, in the next couple of years, you could definitely see a few 120 year olds being more and more common, right? So you could effectively spend more time like post-menopause than you spent in your quote-unquote fertile years, you know? So that's that's an ext- like a, a very real possibility in, in the coming years. Um, so we have to consider like what, you have this hormonal advantage before menopause. So you want to make sure that you're ensuring your life after menopause is as, I'm going to say productive is the wrong word, but is as, you know, beneficial as it can be you know? And so we really want to get the exercise done. And again, we covered that in the last, last episode. We also want to get our protein intake, right? We have to, yeah. Okay. We're going to spend some time fiddling around with calories to find out the right level, you know, in the perimenopause and the menopause, it's going to be you know, a little bit tricky. I wish I had a formula. I wish I was like, all right, we just do this. Right. But unfortunately we don't. Right. So you're going to have to do that just like everyone else has to do it in terms of finding out where their calories are at their you know, maintenance calories, how much they need to lose, how much they need to gain, et cetera. Right. But then there's also this further consideration, which really refines our approach to exercise and also our dietary intake, which is bone health, because we've been talking a lot about the, you know, we'll call it the cardiometabolic stuff, which is a lot to do with, you know, muscle mass, a lot to do with the cardiovascular system. But we often forget that bone mass is something that we actually need to look after, you know, and this is especially true for women when we're considering just, you know, women in general. And, um, but then especially as we get to this kind of perimenopause to menopause transition, you know, because we need to have laid down a good deal of muscle or sorry, bone mass to ensure that again, if we go through this transition, we actually have bone mass to quote unquote spare, you know, because osteoporosis, osteopenia and all that kind of stuff is something that becomes more relevant. So can you tell us a little bit more about, this kind of like bone health stuff in relation to menopause and then also what we should be doing in terms of i suppose you know nutrition and lifestyle really because the training side of things we wouldn't have given our recommendations in the last episode if they didn't already cover <laughs> the bone health stuff so what are we thinking around bone health yeah so like we we're saying in the last one you know at, at this stage you know you're you're trying to kind of maintain what you have you know where, where it, it's when you're not really looking at um, you know, getting bigger muscles or, you know, getting kind of better bone health, like you can to a certain degree, but really at this stage, you're just trying to m- maintain what you have. Um, and so again, kind of look at, you're looking at things that are going to be the most helpful, kind of one of those things obviously is protein. Um, generally the recommendations for, for, for protein for women are like kind of between kind of 1.2, 1.8 grams per kilogram. That's for, you know, a sedentary person, which is actually like quite small, you know, it, it's really kind of not a lot of protein um for a postmenopausal woman you'd be looking at the higher end for an exercising kind of postmenopausal woman you're looking kind of even higher than that you know definitely kind of you know two um grams per kilogram of of um, body weight per day um 
you know but if you actually look at like women's current intakes um like they can be pretty shocking um and i know for particularly for a lot of men a lot of men who um would eat meat um that that's something that's really kind of achievable for them um but for a lot of women you know in their kind of 50s 60s even women in their 20s to be honest kind of hitting that higher range is kind of um you know really really hard um but why it's kind of um more important um well you know yeah, more important, I suppose, in the postmenopausal um, age is because kind of muscle protein synthesis is kind of harder to kind of trigger. Um, so we really do need that combination of kind of protein and kind of training to to trigger it. Um, so we need not only protein training, but also a higher kind of protein stimulus. So whereas before, um, you know, I'd be saying to my younger girls, maybe kind of, you know, kind of 25, 30 grams of protein um, post-training, um, for women kind of 40 plus, I'd be saying kind of actually be trying to hit kind of 30, um, 40 grams of protein after after exercising again, just so we're kind of maximally kind of stimulating the muscle. Um, so, yeah, that that's where this kind of comes in as kind of more important protein as well can, you know, if it's knock on effects like your BCAs have can help with like endothelial function, um, which again, you know, kind of helps with, you know, your cardiovascular disease risk, um, et cetera. So it's kind of, there's lots of reasons why you want to be keeping that kind of towards the higher end. Um, and particularly a lot of older women, can, as women get older, a lot of them, um, you know, kind of stop eating a lot of meat. They start having kind of smaller portions um, of everything, but, um, you know, particularly meat. Um, and um, protein sources so it is about trying to kind of work that in kind of at every meal um, and then particularly post-exercise kind of having that kind of larger larger bolus yeah, a lot of people find themselves in this kind of white bread and biscuits diet you know yeah. where it's like yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's so little protein here it's like you're you if you were to if you were to try to design the worst diet for <laughs> bone health and like your your i suppose metabolic health it would be the the white bread and biscuit diet <laughs> or at least it'd be, it would be up there as one of the worst you know uh, but a lot of people find themselves in that and again this is related to you know reductions in appetite as a function of reductions in exercise habits and activity habits in general so that is yeah. one of those things that you know it's not necessarily uh it's hard to kind of navigate it because you might be like oh, i could never do 30 grams or 40 grams of of protein because you're, you're thinking of it oh my appetite is absolutely shocking yeah. because you don't exercise but because you you don't go out go for walks and all that kind of stuff you know and um, but another thing and it's we've, we have covered it before in a previous episode in the, in the female series in terms of like vegetarian diets like obviously a lot of women do follow more of a plant-based diet and yeah. for them like if you say yeah if you get 30 40 grams of protein after uh you know whatever let's just say you're in your 40s you're like okay well maybe we need to think about a little bit more of a, a bolus of protein at each of our our, yeah. our our feedings like that can be very hard just from the perspective of getting enough protein in general but then also we have to layer on okay we're potentially getting into a little bit of you know what we generally tend to refer to as anabolic resistance so yeah we want more of a protein bolus but we also want to make sure that we're getting our essential uh, amino acids in there, uh, notably leucine, to ensure that we are actually triggering that muscle protein synthesis. Um, and also, like, it has more effects. We're saying muscle protein synthesis, but it also has effects on bone modeling and remodeling and all that kind of stuff. That's what we're, we're talking about in relation to bone health. But that can be very hard to do. If you're talking about someone that's been a plant-based dieter for their whole life, effectively, and you're saying, 
I know you've struggled to get protein in throughout your whole life. Now you actually need more. And yeah, look, you haven't actually been getting enough of your essential amino acids because you don't, you know, you don't do food combinations that have more of the like full spectrum of the amino acids, or you're just not eating meat, you know, or dairy products or whatever. So that can be very hard to navigate for someone in general. But, and this is important to realize, it actually is so beneficial. Like, while it is a really hard thing to navigate, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about that in a second, it is so beneficial, has so many knock-on effects in terms of your metabolic health, so many knock-on effects in terms of your ability to re- retain and build muscle, so many me- knock-on effects in terms of bone health, especially because protein intake or eating enough protein generally makes a calcium absorption. Like, you, you get increased calcium absorption, and we know calcium when we'll talk about that in a second, is related to, to bone health as well. And um, so it has so many knock-on positives, even in like regard to insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance, like there's so many knock-on benefits that it is one of the key things. If I was to like, right, how do we navigate this stuff? It's probably going to be one of the first interventions we do. We're going to go, let's get our protein intake in a good place. Yeah, absolutely. And like saying, it, it's kind of t- taking it small. Um, it, it's one of, like you said, one of the things that it's going to help the most, but it can be kind of one of the most daunting as well. I know even, you know, girls in their 20s who, who start with me and they're like, Jesus, I've never eaten this much protein. They're like, I'm so full all the time, but they'll still be like sub 100 grams, you know. Um, so it is it is just kind of, you know, you have to time um and you know just taking it kind of like easier on yourself like building it up slowly every time you don't have to go from 50 grams to 150 um but even kind of educating yourself on different kind of sources of protein like i don't don't know how many times i've been like okay so where would you kind of usually get your protein from and they're like i eat a lot of nuts you know um so which you know obviously aren't that high in, in in protein so just educating yourself on where you can you know kind of get your different sources is is, is going to be really important as well Yeah. And this is where it really does like you either have to spend a lot of time yourself, like trying to go, okay, I need to get whatever. Let's just say, well, say 150 grams of protein. That's the number we've chosen, right? You either have to spend some time educating yourself on, okay, where do I get this like protein from? Okay. I eat this food. I don't really like that food. I like this. I don't like that. And kind of navigate it yourself and try to craft a, a diet or you can somewhat outsource that and go to a nutritionist or go to like Uniqlo and go get this like full coaching package and go, right, I need help. I want to get, you know, I want to spend the next four months or whatever, just really dialing things in so that I know how to eat to support my goals, to support my health. Um, and effectively you can expedite the process then. That's what the, in our estimation, at least that's the benefit of coaching. You get to expedite the process. And that's not just me just trying to sell our services. I'm just saying that like for a lot of people, it's going to be a bit of a struggle with the protein side of things. You know, there's no real two ways about it. If I create a resource that would just be like, here you go, here's a free resource that would just completely navigate it for you on an individual basis, I would create that in a heartbeat. But unfortunately, it's impossible because it needs to be individualized. You're going to like certain foods. You're not going to like certain foods. You're going to have certain dietary requirements. You know, it, it needs to be individualized. And that just takes time. And it just takes generally working with someone that can help you navigate it, you know? Um, so protein, look, if you can get it in, get it in because it's one of those trans- transformative things, you know? But aside from that, in regard to bone health, what else are we thinking? Yeah, so I suppose apart from kind of protein, our next kind of our big rocks and what everyone, I suppose, knows the the, the most well um, is calcium and, and vitamin D. Um, and, you know, kind of in, in, in our notes for this, I just kind of have dairy underneath calcium. And, and why I have that is I think like, you know, even for me growing up was, you know, dairy was so... Um, 
you know, kind of demonized. Um, but actually, like, it's such a fantastic source of kind of, you know, calcium, not only calcium, protein, which we were just talking about, and kind of like, you know, your, your fats as well. Um, so even, you know, for someone just trying to, you know, get some sources of kind of dairy in kind of throughout the day, whether it's like your protein yogurts, whether it's kind of Greek yogurt, whatever it is, um, you know, it's, it's going to be um, one of those beneficial things for um, bone health. So you'd be looking at getting about kind of um, 12,000 kind of micrograms in per day in this kind of most menopausal age um, and um, vitamin D then. So um, vitamin D will kind of help um, kind of uh, calcium be absorbed. Um, so we know we get it, vitamin D has been a huge kind of buzzword over the last kind of while, particularly with COVID. Um, but we usually kind of get that from sunlight, um, which we don't get a lot of in Ireland. Um, so kind of supplementing with this can be really beneficial, kind of particularly during the winter months. Um, but it is a fat soluble vitamin. So it is something that you ideally will get tested um, with your GP kind of beforehand before you start kind of like a high dose um, vitamin D supplement, because it can be kind of toxic, I suppose, in, in, in high levels, even though that would be pretty rare for for someone in Ireland, but if you were kind of lumping a whole load of vitamin D supplements into you kind of over a period of time and you didn't need it, that would be kind of something, something to, to consider um, getting your level tested before you start on like a high dose. Yeah. And like, you can literally just start with a lower dose. Like it's not like, you know, most people, if you take like, say a, a thousand IU, right. Like it's not going to push you up into the top reference, top of the reference range. You know, like I take 5,000 IU and I'm literally in the middle of it. And I actually do get out into the sun. Like I'm, I know this washes me out here, but I actually am quite tanned. Uh, <laughs> you know, like I do get out into the sun, right? So ideally we would get this tested, but also you can take a small dose and see benefits from that. And especially, I think it's like 40% of the you know, European population uh, are clinically or subclinically deficient in vitamin d so it's kind of one of those things where you're like you know you're probably best off just taking a small dose regardless you know it's probably a good idea unless yeah. you feel like oh i do get out into the sun quite a lot which you know most people don't you know um go on you assume no but also as well like if, you know on, on the other side of that not even from a, like a toxicity point of view but if you were really deficient in it um and you know you're only taking like 400 units a day um like to say like in you know in the hospital if someone comes in with a fracture and we test their levels and if it's sub whatever you'd be putting them on you know um 50,000 units weekly you know so if you're only taking kind of 400 you know maybe five days a week um it's really like not going to kind of you know hit hit your levels kind of fast enough um so kind of if, if it is if bone health is something that you're you know concerned about like it is it is worth kind of get, getting it tested yeah 100 percent um and again like this is, we'll talk about like routine testing for women in a, in a future yeah. episode you know um but just going back to calcium because this is one of those things that i think again pays to work with someone to help you navigate this, right? Ideally, when we're talking about individual like micronutrients or anything, you would work with a dietitian, right? That's going to be the best way because like a nutritionist or anything that we do, we might help you go, oh yeah, like these are going to be better sources of you know, calcium in your diet, but I'm not going to be able to prescribe to you and go eat these foods or take this supplement or whatever, right? That's the, that's the role of a dietitian. They're, you know, they're, that's what they're there for, right? Um, but it does help 
to get someone to have another eye on your diet. And the reason for this is because you can be someone like we just noted, oh, dairy is a great source of calcium. But for a lot of people, like I think it's only like 30% of the world can digest dairy, you know, the lactose at least in, in dairy, you know? So like we're saying this, and I know we have a lot of listeners from India, for example, a lot of listeners in Africa, a lot of listeners in America as well. And you could be a listener and going, oh, they're telling me to you know take dairy and you just don't have the you know, required enzymes to actually digest that dairy. So it's actually not a great recommendation for you as an individual. And this is one of those things where, again, when we're talking about nutrition and lifestyle changes and all that kind of stuff, you have to take into account cultural things. Yeah, for sure. But you also have to take into account that like our genetics, I know we all like to see like, oh, we're all just the one human race and we're all exactly the same, but we're also extremely individual. Like both of those things are true. We are all the same, we're all humans, right? But that doesn't mean that we're not different. You know, <laughs> it's like you're going to have a different ability to tolerate certain substances, certain things in the diet than I am. You know, like I literally could drink like 40 liters of milk a day and be fine. <laughs> you know, whereas someone else, they literally get a whiff of milk and they're literally shitting their brains out. <laughs> you know, so we have to take that into account. So for you as an individual, you might not be able to tolerate dairy. And like you could be of European descent, still not be able to tolerate dairy. And like you could be of African descent, especially East African descent and tolerate dairy. Like I'm not saying it's like, you know, racially divided or anything like that. It's an individual thing. You know, we have to look at it on an individual basis. But for you, dairy might be a terrible choice. And as a result of that, you're going to have to look for that calcium in different sources within the diet. You know, there are different things that you can do. You can choose stuff like uh, bony fish that have like edible bones. Like, for example, you could go for like kippers, for example, and like they have bony, they have bones that you can eat. Um, you can go for stuff like you know, some vegetables also have higher calcium that they do generally have higher oxalates and stuff like that, which potentially negates it. But there's calcium in there that we can, you know, contribute to the diet. There are different foods. I'm not going to go into a big list of calcium rich foods in here. Again, that's what you work with someone to help you navigate that stuff for you as an individual. Um, but it does make sense if you're going, okay, dairy's not for me. I know calcium is important. You might have to choose something else in the diet. However, we live in the modern age, so you might be able to just supplement with it. You might be able to go, okay, I'm just going to take a supplement. All of those other foods that you know are high in calcium that I can actually digest and I can actually eat, they're just not for me. You know, I just don't like them or I don't want to include them in my diet or whatever. Again, fortunately, we can just take a supplement. Now, again, when we're talking about supplementation, consult with your doctor, consult with a dietitian. I'm not going to tell you, oh, take a, a thousand fucking milligrams or whatever of a uh, calcium per day like that's that's not my role you know um but yeah, yeah do you have anything to say on that and if not what's the what, what other vitamins do we need to look out for so and a nice one for for calcium as well particularly for someone who's who's not a meat eater is you can get tofu that's kind of pressed in calcium as well um so again like you're getting your protein in there you're getting your calcium um and as well we'll you know talk about it maybe in another episode but like you're also of kind of your 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 kind of plant estrogens kind of within that as well from from the from the soya so um it's a nice kind of you know one and three three and one i should say yeah but as we've discussed previously unfortunately tofu is disgusting <laughs> You just don't know how to cook it. <laughs> uh, if they can get seitan that has calcium, I'm all over it. <laughs> seitan, delicious. Tofu, disgusting. <laughs> we'll agree to disagree. Um, what else then in terms of micronutrients are we looking at? 
Yeah, so uh, like an, another kind of one is like your your vitamin K. Um, so that um, increases your your calcium uptake into your bones as well. Um, but again, it, it's like you're looking at kind of like your green leafy vag for that sort of thing. But it's not really something you would see kind of supplemented a huge amount. Like it can interfere with kind of blood thinners, like particularly like warfarin. Um, it's just something to to kind of be aware of because you will hear people talking about it. But I wouldn't I wouldn't be starting a vitamin K supplement kind of on straight off the bat. Yeah, like if you basically just get enough fruit and veg you should be good on this again like obviously different people they might need more might need less whatever but generally our recommendations are that kind of food first approach and if you're just getting leafy leafy greens especially you know your vitamin k should be should be good to go um like there are different types of vitamin k and we're not going to get into that in, in this episode um but you will see a lot of supplements that are for bone health they'll have something like calcium vitamin d and vitamin k in it and um, now vitamin k does have a lot of beneficial effects in terms of you know vascular health like it basically makes sure calcium goes where calcium is supposed to go which ideally we don't want calcium in our arteries and that would be you know quite beneficial so it does have effects there but it is one of those things that it pays to just talk to your doctor about this because they could have you on a blood thinner for cardiovascular issues and then you're like oh i heard uh vitamin k is good for cardiovascular issues and now we've got some interference going on here. You're on warfarin, for example, like you said, and it's like, okay, you, you need to talk to your doctor about this stuff, you know? Um, but what else? Anything else that we should be considering when we're talking about bone health? Yeah, so the, like, that's the thing with vitamin K. It's just in case someone, you know, kind of see reads read somewhere that vitamin K is like important for your bone health. It's like, that's the, the missing key. <laughs> that's the key I've been missing and then goes on a supplement. Um, but besides from that, magnesium is a really good one as well. So again, that can help with kind of the absorption of um um, calcium and vitamin D. Um, it also, you know, can help. Um, it, it's a supplement like that I always, not always, but it's one that I kind of often recommend to kind of a lot of women with kind of hormonal issues um, for a lot of reasons. Like it's involved in, you know, so many kind of um, enzyme processes within our body. It's used up like quite easily. Um, and it's, it's not like hard to get it into the diet, but it's not like you're going to be most people don't eat specific things to increase their, their magnesium, you know? Um, so you're kind of getting like your whole grains, kind of your veg, your greens, et cetera. Um, but, um, particularly for kind of, um, menopausal women who are suffering kind of with, you know, hot flashes, um, kind of sleep disturbances, like, you know, magnesium can help aid kind of a restful sleep as well. Um, so it kind of ties in not only kind of with bone health there, but also kind of, you know, kind of sleep kind of stress levels, it, it can be helpful as well. Yeah, like magnesium is involved in so many metabolic processes and enzymatic processes in general. Like even like, you know, ATP, anything that requires ATP, like ATP is bound to magnesium, you know, like that's, yeah. you need it bound. Well, you don't necessarily need it, but it's bound to magnesium or ATP is bound to magnesium in our cells and around our cells. And we ideally want to ensure that we have enough magnesium. And this is why you see it a lot of times recommended for sleep, for example, a lot of times recommended for muscle relaxation. It's not because that is like magnesium just causes you to relax or anything like that. It's that, that's actually not the process, but it's actually allowing your body to relax by effectively allowing ATP to work correctly. Cause you forget that like sleep is a very metabolically active process. Sleep is a very energetically costly process um, and also like relaxation like you actually have to relax the muscle it's not like the muscle itself 
just wants to relax. Your muscle wants to be in a somewhat semi-contracted state at all times, you know? Um, so magnesium can be really beneficial for that. Magnesium can also be beneficial for like gastrointestinal stuff. And that can be both a positive and a, a negative in terms of like, if you get like magnesium oxide, you might be shitting your brains out. That might be what you want, you know? <laughs> uh, it can cause like osmotic shifts and stuff and it might like pull water into your, into your gut, which again, that could be beneficial. It might be exactly what you don't want. Like no one wants to, you know, basically shit their brains out in the middle of a meeting or something, you know? Um, so again, ideally we're getting a, a better form of magnesium, which look, I'm fairly happy to go with anything except for magnesium oxide. Like there are better or worse forms and um, depending on exactly what we're talking about, like I generally favor like magnesium bisglycinate in, in general, right? Cause most people are running somewhat of a glycine deficit. We won't get into that. Um, but magnesium is really beneficial across the board pretty much you can get it from those leafy greens that would be the ideal but a lot of people you're just not going to be able to eat enough leafy greens to get enough magnesium you know so a supplement can be quite effective if there right and um, especially for for bone health which we're talking about here but it also has effects in terms of you know somewhat helping with muscle building but also helping with metabolic health in general and cardiovascular health in general because again if we're talking about muscle relaxation we're also talking about like vascular relaxation and stuff like that so magnesium i'm a big proponent of it just like yourself um so okay that's bone health that's cardiovascular health right that's metabolic health we covered a lot there so far but there actually is a little more to cover here right um so we'll cover something that we talked about a, a moment ago well earlier on we're talking about calories but this is well first of all actually before we get on to that we should mention because we did just mention it is plant estrogens right they are in a lot of these leafy greens that you know, we want, we want people to consume, um, especially in like soy and stuff like that, like phytoestrogens, different things that, you know, you often see them talked about in regard to menopause, but we'll actually cover that in the next episode when we're talking about hormones in general. Um, even though it is kind of actually a dietary thing, right? So that is coming. Don't worry about it. But in terms of calories, right? So we're going back to calories. Why are we going back to calories? Uh, because we didn't actually discuss what happens when you under eat right? Like what happens if you are just in a chronic deficit, you know, when you're perimenopause to menopause, you know, like we've talked about it in regards to, you know, a normally cycling uh, woman and you're like, oh, well, these metabolic complications, these hormonal complications occur if you're in this like low energy available availability state. But if you don't have a, a menstrual cycle because you've gone through menopause, who cares? Does it matter? You know? So what's the story there? Yeah, so th th this is really important. I think it's going to get even more important for um, kind of women our generation because there's a lot more women who are engaging with in exercise, um, engaging in sport. So you know we've spoken on previous episodes about low energy availability and um, about um, you know red S. Um, but for you know how does this apply to women who don't have you know regular menstrual cycle? Like how how do they know? Um, so, you know, you can still have all those, um, you know, kind of negative effects, um, but you just might not be um, as aware of it because you don't have the, the menstrual cycle to kind of have that like immediate kind of, you know, trigger warning. Um, so kind of things that you're looking out for are kind of a decreased, you know, training response. Maybe you're not kind of, you know, adapting to training, you know, as well as you used to be. Um, you maybe you've become stagnant in, in the weight that you're using, maybe even um, regressing in the weight that you're using. Um, in terms of endurance 
maybe your heart rate's running a lot higher than it would be if you're on the cross trainer or you're on the treadmill, whatever it is. It just seems like, you know, training is just harder um, than it used to be. You're thinking about kind of stress fractures. Um, you're thinking maybe picking up kind of more, you know, coughs and colds than you used to. Kind of your immunity is, is affected. Um, there might be more kind of GI upset. So those like your IBS symptoms, you know, nausea, um, bloating, you know, constipation, diarrhea, kind of whatever it is. Um, and then a decreased kind of coordination as well. You just might not kind of um, be a little bit, you know, clumsier than you usually would be. Um, so those are kind of... Um, you know, kind of things that you might be kind of, you know, looking out for your appetite might be, would be affected as well. Um, but kind of what, what do we do about that? And, and I suppose for, um, you know, uh, women are kind of a reproductive age, kind of, we have these like parameters where you look at, um, you know, the amount of calories um, per kg of, of fat-free mass, and there's kind of thresholds that will kind of be hit there. I think it's like 30 um, calories per kilo fat-free mass is kind of low energy availability kind of for a woman. Um, but when we look at um, women in perimenopause and postmenopause, these recommendations kind of don't, you know, um, fly as well. They don't really kind of cross over as well. And kind of the, the research isn't there to kind of show what does work as well, unfortunately. Um, but what we do know is that, you know, it, you're looking at kind of, um, reducing your the the volume of training that you're doing, kind of having shorter um, bursts of high intensity. So if you think that you are suffering with the you know before mentioned you know symptoms, if you are finding that you're struggling more with endurance, um, more with training, you know you're having you know stress factor, IBS symptoms, whatever, it is worth looking at. Okay, you know what is my workload like? Can I you know decrease that? Can I have shorter bouts of intensity? Um, and as well, something that I kind of mentioned earlier is is kind of looking at your you know energy intake kind of around training as well. So trying to eat kind of the 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 majority not the majority of your food but kind of your 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 biggest meal kind of around training around when your body's under the most stress to kind of you know, refuel. Um, yeah, and if just you, on that, that means like before and after training because I know a lot yeah, of people yeah. hear that and go, oh, "Cool, yeah, I'm gonna eat a load of like cocoa pops and stuff after training." Yeah, <laughs> you basically don't want to dip into that low energy available state. So if you're going, "Oh, I'm gonna train first thing in the morning and then I'll eat a huge meal afterwards," like that means that there's a point in that day where you're at your lowest energy availability because it's the morning time. And then you're putting yourself under the significant stress as well. So I know that is something that has come up a few times when you know people have contacted us about podcasts and different things in terms of coaching and stuff. People go, oh, does this mean that I can just eat a huge meal after? And to an extent, yes, but only in the context of eating a uh, you know, sufficient amount before as well or during, during you know, some people have clients they train first thing. They're not going to have like, oh, I have to get up an hour before training. I'm already up at 6 a.m. to train or whatever. They're not going to be like, I have to eat a big meal or something. Like you can do some sort of intra-workout nutrition as well. Yeah, definitely. Like you're saying, the key there is, you know, energy intake around training, you know, not just not just kind of um, post-training, um, but getting something, you know, like, a, you know, there, there have a good few, um, you know, women who do train kind of first thing in the morning. But what I say is just trying to get something small on board beforehand, you know what I mean? Like, you know, kind of like a small banana, just something to kind of you know, have like you are, you are realistically fasting for nearly kind of 12 hours before that. So going in fasted, doing an hour training um, and then maybe not eating for a while after. I mean, it can just, yeah, it can have kind of huge kind of knock on effects. Um, so trying to get something small on board, you know, will, will be helpful kind of whatever it is. Yeah. And the whole like 
I was going to say amenorrhea, like you basically don't get a amenorrhea if you're menopausal, but this whole situation around what we'll call it like the female athlete triad, that's what it used to be called anyway. Um, it's actually really complex when you consider when, or when you throw in menopause or perimenopause or all this kind of stuff into the mix, because you could effectively become amenorrheic because you have a low energy availability and you could be at the age of like, let's say 45, 46, 47, 40, late forties or whatever. And you can go, okay, I've gone through the menopause, you know, and then we get more food back on board and all of a sudden things start again, you know, because unfortunately a lot of the symptoms of low energy availability are kind of the symptoms of menopause. You know, maybe you don't get the, the hot flashes or anything like that. Like that's a little bit different, but you can start getting this increase in, or a decrease in bone health. Like you start seeing fractures more often, different things like that. You start noticing that, oh, I'm not really able to build as much muscle or my response to training is not the same as it used to be. So a lot of these symptoms, they're somewhat indistinguishable, which makes sense because in this low energy availability state, we're basically getting this kind of flatlining of hormones, you know, because your body's not putting the energy towards creating these hormones or synthesizing these hormones because you don't have enough energy coming in you don't synthesize these hormones or create these hormones in menopause because your body's given the signal that there's no need, you know? Um, and we've talked about that. Um, so this can be a really complex thing to navigate and it's not like there's a, uh, Oh, here you go. This is the exact criteria. You know, it's just very hard to navigate before, during and after menopause. Like obviously look, if we're talking like five, 10 years after menopause, like, it's a lot easier to see, you know, it's like, all right, you were, you've gone through the menopause. It's five years later, you've been dieting for the summer or something. And all of a sudden we're starting to see these symptoms. Cool. We can go, this is a low energy availability state. We know what to do, but if you're in the transition, this kind of perimenopause or maybe, maybe even just past menopause, it can be very difficult to navigate this. And unfortunately, a lot of people end up putting themselves into this low energy availability state because they start seeing changes in their body composition or they start seeing changes in, in their body in general. And they're going, Oh, the only way I've ever been able to deal with this stuff is I'll go on a diet. I'll try to lose some body fat. I'll maybe last couple of years. I've, I've quote unquote, let myself go because I had other things going on, whatever. Right. And then they go, I'm going to go into a deficit and then they're in a thousand calorie deficit. And you know, six weeks later, they're like, I, I think there's something worse going on here now, you know? So that is very hard, at least in my estimation to, to navigate. And unfortunately it is actually quite common. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. So yeah, tr trying to actually convince a, you know, kind of woman to actually bring their calories up during this time, um, you know, can be really difficult, like particularly around training. But if you, if you are already in this low energy available availability state, and then you're dropping your calories lower, again like that you're not gonna you're gonna actually see like disimprovements and you know body composition energy kind of training effect so um you know it's almost counterintuitive that you actually want to you know increase your calories um and you'll actually see um you know better results in body composition training etc mm. yeah and again it's just a hard state i wish i had a here you go here's the neat little booklet that you can navigate all this stuff easily but there's there's no you know booklet <laughs> like you just have to eat enough which yes. again, can be hard if your body's changing you feel like your body's betraying you <laughs> you know yeah. uh, and then look there's a few other things and we'll just cover them here you know relatively briefly and these are related to more lifestyle stuff because we've covered a lot already in terms of what we do with nutrition how we potentially change nutrition and hopefully that helps you the listener um 
navigate this situation a little bit better, or at least think about how you would navigate the situation. Because ideally, look, I know a lot of the listeners to this podcast, they're in their 20s, their 30s, 40s. So that's kind of the time where you start thinking about this. I know it might be for some of you, it might be 30 years away, but for some of you, it might even be 10 years away. So if you have a plan of action, or at least you have an idea of how you're going to start navigating this stuff, like you can start putting plans in place, but also, and we've talked about it earlier on in this episode, ideally you're doing some resistance training now you're setting things up so your bone health is at its absolute peak it's maximized your muscle mass maximized you've really ingrained good healthy eating practices you're doing everything to make sure that you're staying you're in good health and then you're able to stay in good health through perimenopause and then postmenopause as well you know excuse me but there are some other lifestyle things and we touched on one of them earlier on in the episode um but around lifestyle what are we thinking there's a lot of different things that we could just talk about they, they kind of fall under diet they kind of fall under different things but it's just yeah. generally things that people do what are we looking at here yeah so you know hot flushes are is are the symptom um that like most women are going to like 80 percent of women will kind of have you know varying severity um you know kind of will, will experience um during menopause um so alcohol can be be a trigger for menopause like we were talking about it in terms of you know cardiovascular disease risk earlier um but yeah trying to limit kind of two or three units a day kind of no more than 14 a week um again that you know, kind of for a lot of people, like two, three units a day can seem like a lot, but um, you'd be surprised how many people have like two glasses of wine with dinner. You might have some extra at the weekend. Um, so that, that actually also just two glasses like, of wine at dinner could easily be four units, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, like, yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, like I think, I think like two glasses of wine is like four units. Yeah. Um, depending on the, the size of the glass, yeah. obviously. <laughs> but you know, it'd be it, it's funny how quickly that that actually racks up with with a lot of people. Um, so that's something to look out for. And yeah, especially if you're experiencing, you know, um, hot flushes. Um, and it's when, again, when we'll come into, you know, kind of looking at, you know, um, taking kind of supplements or something for hot flushes, you know, but you're, you're having, you know, kind of three glasses of wine a night. Um, it just, it, you know, again, kind of eliminate the kind of low hanging fruit, you know. Um, and this, this goes back to the earlier discussion we were having where people will be afforded a degree of more flexibility because of the hormonal advantage. You know, you might've been able in your thirties and your forties to have a glass or two of wine every night but then all of a sudden you start realizing that okay i'm in this perimenopause or i'm in this menopausal transition and now all of a sudden if i have a glass of wine it makes my sleep absolutely awful like it usually makes everyone sleep awful in general even though people use it as a uh, a wind down routine um it's it's not great um but that happens okay so that's been happening for your whole life but now we've got this further compounder in ter- or confounder in terms of hot flashes we've got this stuff like your sleep might be disrupted in general you know and now we're layering on some alcohol it's not a great place to be in and look we're like i I, i'm teetotal myself but i'm not against people drinking i don't think that's a you you can't just tell oh you're never allowed to drink i'm like who the fuck am i to tell you if you should drink or not but if we're talking about you have symptoms you want to you know navigate these symptoms and you want to try improve things or you just want to improve your health in general we're probably limiting our alcohol intake throughout the week in general you know like it's unfortunate because a lot of people enjoy alcohol and a lot of people do find themselves in this kind of lifestyle of having a glass or two of wine per day or you know maybe only on the weekends they go on on the piss basically um but we have to consider that that's not the most beneficial thing for your health you know so for in a time period where health is transitioning and you're noticing more symptoms look, we're going to have to take out the things that you've been getting away with or at least reduce them. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like I was saying, kind of remove the low hanging fruit before you go on to, you know, you know, anything else. Um, so alcohol is a big one. Um, you know, caffeine and spicy foods can also trigger um, hot flushes as well. So if you're, you know, absolutely kind of, you know, milling the chili flakes, you know, maybe kind of hanging off and just seeing if that makes a difference and um, will be helpful towards you for you. Um, smoking kind of is, is another big one. Um, you know, the average age of, of menopause is um, like 51 kind of here in Ireland in the UK but actually kind of smokers will generally go through it kind of a year or two earlier um so that that's kind of one of the, probably the biggest thing that can um help you kind of let lessen your risk of, of having an earlier menopause um and then I suppose moving on to other kind of lifestyle stuff it's on the smoking as well we should also mention it because I know look it's one of those things that doctors are always told like you know you're supposed to say smoking at every single like GP appointment you're supposed to say oh quit smoking and all that kind of stuff like when we're talking about cardiovascular health as well yeah like First of all, don't pick up smoking at <laughs> the menopause. That would be less, less than ideal. But ideally, you would quit smoking in, in general, right? It's just not a, a good health habit. And while, yeah, okay, we're talking about menopause in, in this episode, just in general, like smoking is not beneficial. And that, look, that it probably extends to vapes and stuff like that as well. Like, you know, we could argue there's a difference here, but we just don't know. Like, we don't have robust data of like, oh, I smoked fucking or I vaped you know, however many cartridges or whatever a week and I reached menopause five years earlier. Like we don't, we don't have that data, unfortunately, you know, but it probably extends to vaping as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Vaping has become like really fashionable now, you know, kind of the last um, couple of months, but it does still have nicotine in it. And the, the thing is with vaping is, um, you know, people will be going home kind of vaping in their bed, you know what I mean? So if you're, if you're going through, I think it, if one vape has like two packets of cigarettes in it, I think roughly. Um, so, I mean, if you're, if you're going from, you know, none a week to a vape a week, that's two packets of cigarettes. That's, that's pretty significant. Yeah. And on that as well, like nicotine necessarily or isn't necessarily bad but we also just don't have the data on vaping you know like we just just don't know i'd love to be able to say oh actually completely safe completely whatever we just don't know we would be literally picking data out of our asses here you know and just literally going oh yeah just don't do it but we're probably going to err on the side of caution and say look you don't need to vape so don't (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly stay away from the blue ras It's so deceptive though as well because you'd be walking around and you're like, oh, that's a delicious smell. What is that? Like, <laughs> literally, I'm breathing in someone's fucking air that they've just pushed out of their lungs vaping. I'm like, that's revolting. Um, but anyway, there's a few other lifestyle management things, and these are generally the lifestyle management things that we talk about, like in general. And we were actually just talking about this before the the, the fucking episode here. Um, like some of these things you just kind of go, oh yeah, like these are the things that we should care about. Stress management, sleep management, they're the foundation. Cool. And we kind of just say that. And while we have done podcasts, we've done put out information on social media and everything on these different things. They're actually so big. Like they're such big pillars that yeah, I wish there was more of a focus put on this stuff. But at the same time, they're also really easy things to get in order. Well, a lot of the time at least that you don't need, there's not so much nuance, you know, like stress management, like there's so many practices we can engage in to manage stress. And we've talked about them before, so we won't do a big deep dive here. And the same with sleep. There's so many things that we can do to just encourage better sleep. Now, it might be more difficult when we're talking about perimenopause and menopause, you might be having like hot flushes, you might have like getting really cold at night, warm at night, like there can be confounders here when we're talking about menopause, 
But the foundation is setting up those good sleep habits going, okay, do I have a sleep and wake time? Do I have a regular schedule with that? Do I have a wind down routine that doesn't involve alcohol? And um, do, do I do all the different health habits that are related to good sleep practices? And if not, that's where we're starting. That's what we're doing. We're trying to implement that stuff. And then we can start looking at any of these like esoteric things and going, oh, well, there's actually maybe a supplement that we could consider here or whatever, you know? Um, but then on the, the stress and the sleep, do you have anything to say? I know there's a few things that we could talk about with stress, uh, especially around like cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff. Would you have anything to say on those? Um, yeah, I suppose with sleep, like if you are suffering with um, hot flashes or kind of night sweats, you know, like, just, again, just like simple things like, you know, can you change to, um, you know, a lighter blanket? Can you have kind of lighter pajamas? Can you keep the window open? You know, those kind of general things are, you know, what, what will help. Yeah. And like sometimes, look, it's just not going to help. Like I'm in London at the moment. It's like 30 yeah. degrees. <laughs> like even with the window open, it, there's no there's no like I'm sweating right here and now. But I know tonight. I will literally be like, I literally sleep in my boxers, no blanket on, and I'm still fucking sweating, you know? So like sometimes there's just not going to be something that you can do. Like I can imagine if you're in a similar situation to me, like I generally run hotter anyway, like a lot of men do, um, I generally run hotter anyway. But if you're talking about this, like you're dealing with this, like let's say 30 degrees odd or whatever, and then you've got hot flashes or hot flushes, I should say, on top of that, like you're just in for a bad time, you know? So <laughs> ideally we're doing everything in our power to make sure that we set up the environment for good sleep. Like if you can have a fan, if you can do different things, like, like I know they have like beds and stuff like mattresses and stuff that you can get like cooling pads and different things like that. If we can do any of that stuff, happy days, let's try to bring that stuff in. But unfortunately we're probably going to still deal with some disturbances here. And the only way we can overcome that is accounting for that, but then also allowing for the fact that, you know, you're probably not going to be your most productive during the week. You know, maybe try to catch up on sleep during the weekend. Or if you, again, if you can throughout the week, try to catch up on sleep. That's obviously not possible for everyone. That's not something we generally recommend in terms of, oh, just catch up on sleep on the weekend. Like we ideally want to keep a nice, consistent sleep-wake cycle. But realistically, I would rather see someone get some more sleep if they've been really struggling with sleep because of like, you know, this hormonal transition or just the heat in general. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And then on stress management, do you have anything else? No, you know, not not really. Like it, it is like a, a, a huge change in a lot of women's lives. And and again, like like you're saying before, it it is a topic that isn't kind of talked about enough. And so, you know, I suppose women can feel kind of, you know, kind of isolated or alone, or they can have all these symptoms that can be kind of scary for them. Um, so it, you know, like stress management, talking to other women kind of going through the same thing is, is going to be, you know, really important. Yeah. And obviously if you can be prepared going into it, again, like we said, I think it was the last episode, like talking to your mother, like that it sounds really patronizing like talk to your mother uh but yeah. she probably went through the same things she probably yeah. like that's the biggest like correlate here in terms of the symptoms you have they're probably the symptoms that your mother had so how did she navigate them was there anything that helped her you know different things like that can be really beneficial and then obviously like you said like support groups and stuff like that obviously that can help getting coaching and stuff like that so you have someone to bounce ideas off of and someone to kind of look into the situation and go maybe you could try this or this is something that we could think about like that can be helpful but either way we do want to bring in some sort of stress management whether that's like we're, we're like you know 
outsourcing stress management to like, you know, other people helping you, or it's just setting your life up in a way that you are managing stress more effectively. You know, like ideally we're not doing like, oh, I'm actually going through menopause and I have the biggest project of my life, you know, going on at the same time. Now, obviously, look, that's going to happen to some people. Life is fucking strange like that, where it's just like, unfortunately, this is how this is the cards you were dealt, right? Um, but ideally, again, it's one of those things that we would set up some good stress management practices earlier in life and then have them as a baseline and then have different things that we can potentially bring in when we know stress is higher. You know, like we can think of this as a, a higher stress state for the body in general, but then also yeah. because there's lifestyle changes along with this, there's more stress involved in that as well. Like, you know, um, so look, I think that's everything we want to cover in regards to nutrition and lifestyle. Like obviously look, some of those things we could talk a little bit more on, but Again, this is not a fully comprehensive, every possible like nuance. There's going to be a lot of individualization. So this episode is really just to help you get an idea, you know, launch some ideas, th- like start points for thinking um, and hopefully help you navigate this or at least prepare to navigate this stuff, you know. But having said that, there are still some other things that we need to consider with regard to menopause. And we'll cover them in the next episode because we've been talking about like managing some of the symptoms, just talking about, you know, heart disease risk, bone health, we'll call it like metabolic health. We've been talking about what we would do, maybe start thinking about with nutrition, start thinking about with training, like having a good baseline process there. But we haven't really talked about the hormones. We've talked about what they do and a lack of what they do uh, or a lack of having those hormones, what happens then. But we live in the modern era. So you could potentially just supplement pharmacologically like obviously i'm saying supplement like you could supplement in terms of there are some we'll call them over-the-counter methods and we'll talk about them in the next episode and then there are also more like pharmacological which your doctor might prescribe now both of them in terms of if we start manipulating hormones i would generally advocate talking to your doctor in, in general um but i know a lot of people like to you know research this stuff themselves look into this stuff themselves you know so they want to go into if they're going to a doctor's appointment they want to go into it informed, you know? So we'll talk about a, a few things here in the next episode. Um, but right now, Nicola, is there anything else you want to make a note of or mention? Nope, happy enough with that. Fantastic. So guys, as per usual, you know where to find us. You can find us on all the links below. Social media, follow us on Instagram. That's you know where we put out a lot of content. If you can follow the podcast, share the podcast, that really does help the podcast. I know a good few people have been enjoying this uh, female health series. Like we've had a good few followers as a result of that, um, as, as a result of people sharing it and stuff. So that really does help the growth of the podcast. And also it does allow us to know that there is, you know, there's people listening to it. So people are actually enjoying it. So we'll make more content like this if people are enjoying it, you know? So that really does help. Subscribe, give a review if you can on the app that you listen to podcasts on. Um, We do have coaching spaces available. I know, Nicola, you have a few spaces available now that you're, you know, a little bit more free in your schedule. Um, So, you know, you have a few more spaces available. We do have a coaching team. If you have different issues, it's not, you know, female health specific. So you can get in contact with us with regard to that. You can follow the links in the description box, wherever it is below, above, side, wherever it is in whatever app you're you're listening to this on. Um, Other than that, I don't really have anything else to say. So I hope you all enjoyed that and we will see you in the next episode.